Hello, welcome to So What You're Saying Is. I'm Peter Whittle. Now, culture, it's said, is upstream of politics. But sometimes now it seems that we are at war with our own cultural history. Or indeed, have we actually lost faith in it? If this is the case, then how is that reflected in our everyday cultural life and indeed in cultural policy? Now, with me to discuss this is Tiffany Jenkins. She is a commentator, academic, and writer, and author of a highly acclaimed book called Keeping Their Marbles, How the Treasures of the Past Ended Up in Museums and Why They Should Stay There. Um, she's with me now. I'm very pleased that you've come, Tiffany. Thank you very much. Hi, um, with the book, which came out a few years ago, you were arguing basically that against the tide, isn't that right, of what museums particularly you know, were doing, in the sense that you're, basically you're saying that we shouldn't feel worried about where the various items have come from, is that right? Um, I wanted to take a position, yeah. uh, which is artefacts on the whole should remain where they are, yeah. um, not fixed in stone, but they shouldn't be returned to their origins right. automatically, which is the kind of... Um, the contemporary feeling, if you like. But I also wanted to take a step back and say why. And it's very easy in these debates to become really entrenched and to take position yeah. and then just rant at each other. You don't persuade anybody. Um, so I wanted to look at why it, was, why it had come to be the case that in the last 30 years, museums, which are, you know, they've always been a little bit political, but they have become intensely politicized yeah. and they've become like the place where people are advocating for social change. The repatriation of artifacts should go back because of the sins of colonization and because of what it can do for communities today. And I wanted to ask why museums? You know, why not why not Parliament? Why not the public <laughs> square? Why museums? What yeah. was it about them? Was the what was the effect of your book? I mean has there been any kind of change at all? I mean, I know it's hard really to measure, but do yeah. you think it's affected the way they think about these things? I think for a small time, it opened up a space of conversation. Um, and I think that's really important. So I don't know if I changed anybody's mind who was, in, you know, yeah. who, who was a repatriation advocate, if you like. But I wanted to say, this is why I think what I think. Uh, this is where my uh, thinking came from. And just to kind of unpick things and unlock things. And I think that's something we really need today, particularly in culture, where it's just become so, it's become a war. Yeah. And I just, you know, let's get off the battleground and get around a table and talk talk to each other about why we think what we think. But, the, I mean, most people, I think, would know all about the Elgin marbles, right? Mm. It's been going on for years, mm. and they wouldn't even necessarily think of it in terms of sort of cultural guilt or anything like that. It just seemed, oh, well, maybe they should have them, maybe they shouldn't. Um, can you give us some other examples of, I'm thinking maybe the begging uh, yeah. bronzes, for yes. example, you know, where this has been the basis of it, that essentially, you know, guilt about imperialism maybe. What other examples have there been? I think, I'll talk about the Ben and Bronzes in a minute, but I first became interested in it when there was a big debate over human remains in museum collections. Right. So lots of museums, Natural History Museum, for example, has an extensive collection of human remains, mainly for research, so it's not yeah. on display. But places like the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford does have shrunken heads on display and they're less, for, they're less for research, active research. But in the 90s and in early 2000 they became the focus of claims making for the return to Aboriginal communities and Native American communities yeah. in states, Australia and Canada and New Zealand. 
and then uh, a little bit more recently in Britain. Mm. Um, and many did go back, and they went back to communities of origin, which are quite loosely defined on the basis that the circumstances in which they were acquired were uh, under settler society. In many cases, the, the, the legacy of that, those settler societies was that uh, cultures were almost wiped out. So very serious events in history. But what struck me about it was that sometimes the people who were calling for it most vociferously were not communities outside the institution, but they were within the institution. Yeah. Yeah. So you had museums that previously would not have let anything go. You know, everything was under lock and key. Yeah. Uh, they, many curators were officially called keepers, yeah. you know, because they yeah. were to keep yeah. this yeah. stuff. Um, but they were very keen to repatriate, and they were very keen. And I was struck. I thought that was a significant departure in what museums used to stand for, sort yeah. of Enlightenment values. Yeah. Ben and bronzes are much more recently the focus of controversy and I think the last year you've seen President Macron call yeah. for uh, uh, items taken in that period so under the um, in Africa under the kind of carve-up of Africa so the Ben and Bronzes that are in the British Museum were taken under a punitive expedition by the British right. in the late 19th century um, and they are very there are very few in Nigeria modern-day Nigeria so I think for me there would be a case for returning some to Nigeria because there are very, very few, and there are many in European collections. Yeah. Uh, but that is, for me, it's kind of the question is where does the object, where is best for the object, not where is best for politics. Yeah. And I think politics is very much, I mean, it's very convenient for President Macron um, himself not doing so well at home <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> to yeah. prance about on the world stage and almost virtue signal. And yeah. this is his, his case. And I think objects can kind of get lost, lost in that. Uh, they become kind of burdened by political expectations. So this is an entirely a Western thing, is it? Is it, is it? Does it affect purely Western museums, institutions? In the, in the, in the form that I'm talking yeah. about. So culture, always, so culture has always been taken and demanded back. So yeah. the Romans, for example, uh, were great looters, and I don't mean that in an approving way, <laughs> they were extensive looters, and yeah. it was a way to show off, you know, we, we, we not only have dominated you, we have got your culture. Um, and many leaders sort of followed in those footsteps, including Napoleon. Uh, there, was a, there was a little ditty in, in Paris where they used to sing, uh, Rome is no longer in Rome, it's all in Paris. Right. Uh, that, so that was the, the path of the course. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but that was a path of the course for some, for centuries. Um, and in so the 20th century, that began to change. And what's interesting is that in the last sort of 30 to 40 years, the idea that museums could do something positive with this material and could show the world to the world, if you like, has become something they're more, much more uncomfortable about and I think this is as much about Western institutions yeah. feeling unsure of their purpose and trying to find something positive in their view to do that they mean that means that they are then very they are very very um, open to requests and arguments for return yeah. so they're as much part of it as they are I mean you know in, in some cases in the States thinking about the human remains example uh, they had quite a difficult time interesting 
making communities interested in receiving human remains for return. Yeah. There's a case of Ted Carpenter, a Smithsonian Institute, uh, uh, anthropologist who's really keen to repatriate. Um, and this very much came, I think, from anthropology, some of this thinking. Uh, very, very keen to repatriate to an Eskimo community. And he goes, and then he's very candid about this. Yeah. They take, he takes these bones, and the community then says, well, yeah, OK, um, if you want, but this is not something that is really of concern to us. Yes. Um, it's, it has become so for, for, for many, but no, it's certainly it's as much from about the institution trying to, if you like, reposition itself. Well, this is what reposition itself. I mean, you've written about uh, the politicisation of museums. You highlight particularly, for example, museums of migration, mm. which have been popping up, you know, various different places. Mm. Um, this really isn't surely the point and function of a museum, is it, it to make political points? I mean, you know, I, I, I feel just as a layman going quite often, I, and I sort of think, no, this is just because, you know, it's at the forefront of my mind all the time. But I often find that I'm being told things in a particular way. Um, with the immigration museums, what is, I mean, basically they are there, are they not to show why immigration has always been a very good thing? Is, is, is that fair to say, do you think, in your estimation? Um, I think museums have, if you look at museums in their heyday, it was, they, they did give expression to the nation state. Yeah. Um, there was a flurry of national museums as the nation state rose. And even the British Museum, although it had nothing uh, from Britain within it, it was very much a kind of surveyor of other cultures. So museums have expressed the political currency and uh, values of the time. Um, I think today, though, they're being, in a way that, that they expressed something, whereas today they're almost being asked to cause something. Yes. So yeah. the relationship has changed. Um, also, just thinking about the Victorian period when there was a flurry of museum building with the express purpose to kind of uplift mm -hmm. local people, mm -hmm. you know, Whitechapel being built mm -hmm. in, in, in an in a, a extraordinarily poverty-stricken area of London, was the idea that of the Barnets uh, was to uplift people. So yeah, there, there yeah. is a kind of, there is a politics there, but I think they sort of thought that people could be uplifted away from their everyday life. It's, that's a sort whereas of surely a good ambition, I isn't think so. it? Yeah, whereas yeah. I think now it's much more reflect, let's yeah. reflect your life yeah. rather than take you somewhere else. Yeah. Um, so the idea that you could be transformed, I think, has uh, sort of vanished. Now you mentioned migration museums. I mean, s some museums can do things that are interesting and explore interesting ideas. I mean, it's not necessarily political, but the Welcome Collection looks at the body and the heart, looks at ideas as much as it does objects. I think the problem with some of the migration museums is that they are, they, they only express what they're, they're opinion-led. So mm. migration mm. is a very good thing, is the idea, and as the only way they can sort of express it sometimes is, is really banal. So they bring in fashion if you have migrants, or they bring in um, good food. Food, yeah. And it, it's something that's just a lot more complicated yeah. than that. And I think it, there is a danger of the cultural world in general just reflecting a small minority elite opinion. Mm. Um, and, not, and that has become, I think the art world and the museum in general has become detached from the broader public. I mean, you know, without should be crude, uh, making connections like this, we, we're hearing a lot about this at the moment, generally the idea that there is 
one set of opinions, which is not basically does not reflect the majority opinion or whatever. Do you think there is, a, therefore, great uniformity amongst our cultural establishment in that way, in what they believe? Um, I think, I think there, is a, there is on certain issues very much so. And I think what you have is a, I see it as a dynamic between those that don't express their opinions right. and feel uncomfortable about doing so. And I do think they're a little bit cowardly for that. Right. I don't think. I think you know, you've written they don't have whipped. a backbone or something. <laughs> yeah, they, you say they need to get a backbone or yeah, something. And yeah, and they need to begin to articulate why. I mean, they need to be able to articulate why their vision of the institution and of art is is one that other people should be involved in, mm. um, rather than sort of hope that either history will do it or people will um, run out of enthusiasm. So the ones with the passion, I think the ones with the passion and the energy in the cultural world are the ones that express, in my view, a, a minority opinion yeah. and is, in a way, looks down to the public and to some degree no longer really trusts the transformative power of art. That's the point. I mean, this is about, in a way, the collapse of confidence, is, is it not? Mm, this mm. is a much broader thing, mm. in a way. It, you could say that people who are in charge of our culture, for want of a better expression, whether they're curators or whatever, uh, if they no longer think that that thing they're meant to be curating is, is any good, or, or if they look at it in a very relative way, then we've got a problem, haven't we? Yes, I think what it does is that it privatizes art. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really struck. I, I was at a, large, a meeting with, uh, run by a, large, uh, a senior member of a large cultural organization. And in private, they will tell you their cultural judgments. They will say, I've read this book. Or yeah. you, 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 yeah. They will have quite high, complicated conversations about whatever painter or, or uh, piece of music it is. But in public, they won't do that. Um, and the institution, in a way, is constantly, our organisations are constantly saying, we, we really care what you think. Mm. We want to know what you think. Uh, we want to reflect our communities. Mm. Mm. But it's very disingenuous. Mm. Um, and I think if they trusted the public as well as trusted their own judgments, yeah. then they would be having this conversation that is much more about aesthetics or much more about qu quality or much more about music. But I mean, do you think that they uh, don't trust well, they do trust their adjustment, maybe, but they're more frightened of appearing elitist, for example. I mean, there's this great emphasis now on accessibility, isn't there? Yes. You know, in a way, you're talking about the Victorians, you know, basically putting things there and some trying to raise people up. I know these are unfashionable statements, right? Mm. But somehow trying to transcend, you know, the everyday life. Um, but now it seems that that confidence is gone, but also it's sort of like a fear, maybe, that they are being elitist, this, this particular word, you know, which is thrown about. Would you say? I mean... Um, I think that they... I think they no longer trust the public um, are capable of understanding and appreciating art. I think they're, in a way, despite all this democratisation, uh, they are more disconnected from the public mm. than they have been in earlier times since the Victorians when I think they did. You know, they put the, the National Gallery was, now it's obviously an extraordinary, London is just wealth after wealth after wealth, um, but that was there between the poor and the rich district, so people would come. Yeah. Um, and you know, the British Museum was free um, 
the day it opened, it was free. You had to have clean shoes. <laughs> you had to write. <laughs> so you know, it's, that, it's yeah. a relative idea of accessibility. But nonetheless, it was it was wanted to bring people to the best. I think, although that they, although the cultural elite, uh, if you like, um, I think they're perhaps a little bit more ambivalent. I mean, it, and if you look at art itself, if you look at the way art is kind of changed over the last 30, 40 years, it is imbued with either a kind of self-questioning, yeah. which can be very, you know, it can be quite creative and it can very much reflect the period. You'd, art has to reflect its own time. Yes. It can't, you can't, you can't go back and recreate uh, artwork from previous periods um, from now. Um, but it, art itself has become a little rarefied, I think. When when did that happen? When did that change in attitude occur? You know, this where you're sort of saying b b b people don't want to appear judgmental, they, they're they less, you know, they're far less certain now. When would you say that really changed? We've been talking about the Victorians, we're talking about a century yeah. ago, 150 years ago now. So There are waves, I suppose, right. waves of uncertainty. I mean, in so I was just thinking about the modernists. Um, which I think w th there was an there was a kind of horror of mass society mm. that reflected itself in modernist literature in particular. Um, that was very, as I say, you know, it's not always a terrible thing. That was quite creative. Um, but then I think there's been waves ever since, um, both within art and also academia, mm. which obviously train a lot of museum directors and curators, and probably the sort of seventies just to complicate it slightly, I think in the 70s what you had was a tur in the political sphere turning away from politics as, as a kind of a, the vehicle for social change mm. and equality mm. movements mm. Mm. and far more towards identity movements um, and culture as a way. Mm. Mm. So if you have, a, if, if you like, if you have a kind of culture in the arts, slightly terrified of mass society, then starts to question the possibility of truth, then becomes politicized uh, with the decline of left-wing movements yeah. and and identity movements. And maybe that th those are the sort of, you know, four so connecting threads, if you like, that have taken us to the present. A move away from, if you like, formal political activity into cultural yes. areas. I mean, when you talk about that fear of the modern world, fear of the man, you see this in the Bloomsbury group, famously. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, horror. Absolutely. Of the crowd, you yeah. read Virginia Woolf, mm. appalled at these people celebrating. I think it's the coronation of George V or mm. whatever. You know, absolute horror of. It's interesting that maybe the arts generally have become more elite, if you like, or more, uh, you know, as it were, separate from people as we've become more democratic. Supposedly, this is one of the great paradoxes. Well, isn't it? yeah, supposedly. I mean, I think we. The, we I think. Obviously, in many ways, we are much more democratic, and that's a good thing. But I think the language of democracy um, is everywhere, and yet it feels like it just feels really it feels disingenuous yeah, to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the language that the museum profession has talked about accessibility um, may be well intentioned, but it rings hollow. It's almost, yeah. I think what happens is it's almost like they give the public. An easy jet experience. Mm, yeah, you know, yeah, you yeah. stuff people in. Um, you make it actually not a very pleasant experience, and then it's fine for you because you can have your private views and your corporate functions mm. where there isn't so many people in the gallery. 
And I, I think things are done in the name. You always have to ask when people are talking about access, is access to what? Are people really getting the cream? I don't think they are. No, we did a report here at the New College Forum on the Natural History Museum. Mm. And, you know, that is, for me, one, a great example. You know, it's just full of cafes now. It's full of cafes mm. and, and what have you. And there's nothing wrong in a cafe. You know, don't get me wrong, whatever. But it, you get this feeling of somehow or other this is being turned into the natural history experience. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Far more than maybe in, in, a, in a rigorous way. Um, I was gonna, and it's full of kids. And I've taken many children there <laughs> for very good reasons. They love the dinosaurs. But I think the institution is no longer talking to us as adults. Yeah. Um, one other thing that I've seen that you've written about, and it, it, it can't be avoided now because it is massive, and that is identity politics. You mentioned uh, mm. this movement into identity politics. And I just wonder, you know, we, we talk about this in terms of education, in terms of all these different areas and, and, and government. But in the arts, I mean, what has been the effect of identity politics generally in the cultural sphere? I don't just mean museums, but it, by your observation, it seems to me that it's now there is a particular sort of obsession maybe with identity politics. That can't be healthy for the art, surely. The most destructive examples have occurred in the last few years yeah. in the States, but also here in Paris. Um, and th th those are cases of where an artist has produced a work, something like, I'll just reel a few names of Brett Bailey's Exhibit B. Oh, that was the slavery one? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So at the Barbican. At the Barbican. This was a case I should explain where there was a sort of an anti, obviously anti-slavery uh, exhibit. But I think you've you've put it quite well, actually, Tiffany. You said that there's a growing feeling that only particular stories mm. can be told by particular people, yes. right? And yes. that was the problem there, wasn't it? If you could explain. So he was a white South African yeah. uh, male, and he did a piece about how in different periods in history black people have been objectified. It's not just slavery, like there was one where at the beginning of the piece which I saw in Edinburgh, um, there's a couple exhibited as if they're in a museum as they were once, mm -hmm. um, and, th and this happened in the States. So it's a historical, it's very, very challenging piece actually, um, and although it was didactic, it was genuinely provocative and challenging and interesting. Um, and the, there were protests against it because he's white, even though the actors who took play, part in it are black and wanted to take part in it. But in these kind of in these kind of controversies, that doesn't count. You know, they, they, that black voice is not. You know, there's only one voice which is allowed, which is those that are protesting, yeah. those that have wanted to take part in this are being paid. It's their job, and they want to do it. They they don't count. But it was shut down. It didn't. It was yes, on at the Barbican. Yeah. Uh, and they had to shut it down. I mean, in Paris, they had to have armed police. To, and this is a bizarre thing, because in a way, y you've got people saying you cannot put something on. So it is literally yeah. <laughs> silencing artists. But, but and for, for me, sorry, but yes. for me, the thing is about art is that it is an act of empathy and communication. And if I think about some of the great pieces of work that I've seen, I'm thinking I just, the other evening, I saw Sajit Ray's Apu Trilogy. So this is a Bengali filmmaker. Uh, operating a sort of 1950s yeah. three-part series about yeah. this young boy who becomes a man and the you know the troubles of life yeah. and that he is in many ways different to you or me um, is not the point it's that you find connection and 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 you 
in a way, he's holding your hand and showing you his work. Yes. So it opens up um, and connects. And as an act of sort of human empathy, you, you think about this young boy. But, but this and I think that's what they're trying to shut down. You know, and I think that's fundamentally what's being shut down here. But this is a, a real danger, surely, isn't it? I mean, to it's okay you say it's freedom of speech thing, but it's not just that, is it? Mm. It actually undermines the whole idea of creativity. What it's essentially saying is like you cannot write about experiences of a say like a a man even, yeah. right? Yeah. Me as a gay man can only write about gay things. Does that <laughs> yes, mean? Exactly. I mean, basically, yeah. you're wiping. You would wipe out the whole of our culture, would you not? I mean, mm. if you applied that, what about Shakespeare? What about how far back do you want to go? Yeah. But I mean, the point is, this ap appears utterly ridiculous. But I feel that it has quite a grip. Mm. Do you think? I, th I think it does. I mean, the, the other thing about it that's, it that's so detrimental is that it sort of says we cannot relate and we cannot relate to somebody who's not immediately obviously like us yeah yeah so yeah. i think it's really bad for solidarity yeah. actually and, and fundamentally conservative in that it just says stay where you are that's it you are who you were when you were born you can't become something else um it's really conservative yes. yeah it's politically really really bad bad idea i think it has a I think it's it's also politicised everyday life. Yes, so food, yeah. dress has become subject to this kind of criticism, and I think most people just want to do the right thing. Yeah, yeah. And they, f the, the the times that I've become quite worried about it is the way in which young people in particular will say, well, maybe I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't wear a sari, or maybe I shouldn't eat that food because it's somebody else's culture. And you know that's, that's against curiosity, and the fact that we learn from cultures, we learn from each other, and we're always sort of you know eyeing eyeing something else up just to see because it's maybe it's better than what we've got. But it's interesting though, isn't it? But this is it, it's got the seeds of its own destruction within it, hasn't it? I mean, you're talking about the cultural appropriation, what is now called yeah. cultural appropriation, which seems to go entirely against the whole idea of what we've been actually that somehow. How can you worry about the fact that you might be appropriating and at the same time celebrate, say, diversity, all mm. of this? Mm. It adds to an enormous confusion, doesn't it? So people, I guess, on the whole, decide to stay quiet, don't they? Rather than say the wrong thing, maybe? Yeah, no, I, I think that's true. I mean, I think, I think we hear a lot about diversity, but actually there's very little of it. It, it is a, it is a, it's a word that, that masks a different reality, mm. which is, you know, if you take something like learning languages, mm. even European languages, that's, it's down. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if you want to know about other cultures, you need to learn the language and go yeah. to museums yeah. and look at the porcelain and the, and the script and the abstract design, whatever. Um, I think we do live in fairly timid times and I think people are afraid of saying the wrong thing. And so, because what happens is that they say, so what you're saying is, yeah, you know, it's like yeah. a classic marital Thanks. argument. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> you know? yeah, so yes. what you're saying is that this, you say, no, yeah. it's not. Um, yes. Am I optimistic? I'm optimistic because I think people are curious about each other, because they do want things to change. Um, and they don't want to just be, them, you know, they want to be more than what they're born with, if you like. They want to become something else. Yes, exactly. You don't want to stay necessarily a prisoner, you know. Yeah. You know, if you're born in one social, you know, economic 
uh, group or whatever? What does that mean that you can never actually mm. think it outside of those mm. terms? It seems. And some amazing. of the most exciting art has come from people who have left home, yeah. left their country, and gone somewhere else. Um, I have to say, it seems that you've m talked about uniformity, museums, or whatever. It does appear to me that in the cultural world generally, and I mean, I worked in it for a lo long time as mm. making programs and writing about it. There's a sort of, uh, is extraordinary uniformity of views, I think. And we've seen this, for example, with Brexit, mm. you know, the, what was it? Ni uh, some 97 percent. 97 yeah. percent or something like that. Um, you are not one of the 97, I understand, when it comes I'm to... I'm one of the three percent. One of the three yeah. percent. Um, is life hard, therefore? Um, <laughs> it, it's one of those, I go back and forth on this. I mean, it, when the Brexit vote first happened, there was um, a very negative reaction and to those that voted for Brexit. And I think it just reflected the fact that so few people in the cultural world left London or left yeah, their bubble. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that really threw up to me the kind of irony of a world which is constantly talking about accessibility and democratization and the public and audiences had obviously never spoken to anybody outside their own dinner parties. Yes. Um, I mean, God knows where we are now with Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> to be continued, to be continued, yes. I'm sure. But I should say that, it, you know, it's w when you turn off the microphone and when you shut, uh, you know, when you close up shop, I have found people are much more open than they appear to be. Mm. And they genuinely want to know, why did you vote for Brexit? Mm. And they genuinely, you know, there is a genuine, my, you know, my husband voted to stay um, with the EU. And so, you know, there are a lot of people who are just trying to have that conversation out, but it just, you just, it, you just wouldn't tell from um, the kind of, the public debate that's occurring. Tiffany, look, thanks very, very much for coming this time. I hope you come back actually, because mm, so uh, we I. could talk ahead about a hell of a lot of other things, but thank you very much for the meantime. Um, that was uh, so what you're saying is, please, if you've enjoyed it, do subscribe. I think there's a marker coming up here on the screen <laughs> and you put it in there and subscribe. Thanks very much for watching and see you next time.